Today's episode of Rebuilders is a little bit of a different um, gear for us. What do we talk about, Mark? Well, we're pausing our um, series that we've been doing on discipleship and uh, we're really looking at the whole situation in Ukraine. Mm. Um, uh, you know, what does it mean? For the world, um, how is it changing things, and you know how do we how do we view this as as Christians? And I think one of the great things that we've been trying to do is narrate the changes in the world, but mm. do that with a biblical perspective of doing that with you know um, what does that tell us about our relationship with God, God's relationship with the world, and so we're gonna we're gonna do that today. Yeah. So if you want some notes from the episode references to a whole bunch of articles and books that were mentioned, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's dive in. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and with Daniel. How are you both? Good, thank you. Great. Excellent. Before, Such polite responses. Before we dive in, can we send our best wishes and, and um, to um, Queensland? And, yes, um, yes. For those overseas, we've got quite terrible flooding at the moment in Australia. Um, um, Queensland, northern Queensland. New, 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 South, New, South New South Wales. South Wales. Yeah. I think yeah. it's even going possibly down to Sydney today. So mm. yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, it's pretty quite devastating there. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. So thoughts and prayers um, with those areas of Australia. Um, yeah. So today we are taking a bit of a detour from the series that we started a few weeks ago uh, to focus on yeah the crisis that's um, playing out between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we touched on this in previous weeks um, and just want to spend some time exploring it as it kind of reflects a lot of the mm. frameworks that we've been talking about for the last couple of years. Um, yeah, so how about we start a little mm. bit? You've obviously been talking about Russia mm. um, in many ways and in many contexts for uh, many, many years. Can you kind of explain that? What you, what are you seeing mm. emerge now? Mm. Yeah. Well, the first thing, even just before we kick in, just as we sort of, you know, like I think I think we're talking and realize that we're analyzing, and I think it's important to look at this from the big perspectives and what we've been, mm. the story we've been telling with this podcast, I yeah. think for some time uh, about the changes in the world and how do we respond to that. But you know, don't want to get away from in this moment where there's heaps of analysis. You know, just the very real suffering as we speak yeah. of um, uh, people in Ukraine, mm. and you know, uh, you know, we're praying. We have a prayer meeting tonight, um, uh, and if people are wondering, you know, what to do, and you know, if your response is, you know, you want to pray, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's some great resources, twenty four seven prayer I've got. I encourage you to, to seek them out, but wh wherever you know you can give um, to what's going on. Um, and, you know, just also just wanted to also, you know, I think the Russian people as well are about to enter into a new phase. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I just think Russia um, is really important um, for God's future, as is Ukraine, and um, the role that it has to play in God's future. So we just really need to pray and contend for those countries mm. um, uh, and their people. The reason I think I, I became interested in, in Russia as – it was more than just Russia as a country. I felt that something was happening in Russia that was important for this bigger story of where the world's going. Mm. And um, I think I became interested um, uh, when uh, actually Vladimir Putin disappeared um, for a period <laughs> when uh, no one could see him. Boris Nemtsov, the, uh, the opposition uh, politician, mm. was shot in, in Red Square. And um, but then I started reading more. But I noticed there was something going on behind the scenes that Russia and the emergence of what was happening in Russia, and particularly the way Russia was using media and disinformation, um, uh, grabbed my attention because it seemed to be a plot twist. Up to that point, I think my sort of cultural reading of where the world was going was very much shaped, you know, almost the vision of the movie Her. Yes. Where you have this sort of stylized vision of Los Angeles a few years in the future, but it's very futuristic. And that movie was actually partially shot in Shanghai, which is fascinating. Um, Shanghai's future Los Angeles. 
And the sort of world seemed to have sorted out a lot of its problems. It's very neat. There's not like homeless people living on the streets. It's like this polite place, which is beautiful. And the character in that, he, you know, falls in love with his sort of AI-driven um, assistant. Yes. And so the sort of message there was, you know, I felt like the original title for Disappearing Church, the book I wrote, was actually going to be called The Beautiful Apocalypse. That what we were facing was this post-Christian future, which was alluring, where technology would sort of capture your attention and form us in these sort of ways, which are contrary to the way of Jesus. And, you know, so how do we sort of steadfast, be a creative minority mm. uh, against that? And I think there's still, you know, obviously relevant things in that book. And, you know, I think a lot of it is still very pertinent. But as I sort of began to look at Russia, I began to have this sense that this sort of post-Christian vision of the world was actually going to be subverted. That what we'd assumed is that the West was the one driving the story. And actually what was happening in Russia was something very, very different. And, uh, you know, so, I, you know, I think I talked about, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, will say, oh, Mark's into Russia. Why? I'm into lots of different things. But it was really about, um, you know, I, I think I spoke about it on this cultural moment. And I think when we recorded that season, I can't remember which one it was, of this cultural moment where I talked about Russia and disinformation and mm. stuff like that. Um, I'd also preached that that weekend at, um, so I was thinking about the sermon I was about to give, which I gave at Bridgetown, which was all about Russian disinformation. It was part of their uh, The Flesh of the Devil, The World series, which John Mark's now written up into a book. And I think one of the one of the chapters is sort of, you know, his sort of rehashing of that, of that sermon. Mm. Um, so, that, well, there's a sense that, yeah, everyone was, I was sort of like saying to everyone, yeah, I've prepared you for this post-Christian world, this beautiful apocalypse, this vision of like the movie Her, but hang on, there's a plot twist. Yeah, okay. And so I think I've been following that thread, you know, we've been talking about here, but I think it's come center stage in even ways that I'm shocked by. Mm. Well, I think perhaps what would be helpful in, I guess, understanding how we got to this plot twist kind mm. of space Um We'll head back to the mm. 80s, uh, mm. back to 1989 with the fall of communism and mm. the period after that and what sort of changed, um, I guess, in broad brushstrokes across the world mm. and culture between mm. West and, and Russia. Well, you know, I've often said that, you know, the reason we talk about this a lot is the vision of the world that we have, of post-Christianity, of secularism that some people have been trying to wrestle with over the last few years is really indicative of an ideology that grows up in reaction to a series of changes that happen in the world mm -hmm. after the fall of communism. Yeah. So the West becomes dizzy. It's defeated its great mortal enemy of the Cold War of communism and it's like triumphant, you know, and, you know, the often referred to famous book by Francis Fukuyama, the American political scientist, The End of History. We've reached the end of history and it's sort of this – you know, slowly progressing secular West where people live content-free uh, in Fukuyama's words and, you know, all that big stuff of the past of nationalism and, and religion and tribalism and bigger stories, that's all gone. Mm. And people are just going to sort of slowly drift towards, um, uh, you know, a better world. That's a very simple uh, explanation of his theories. Um, so that shapes a lot of how we see in the world. The average person is like, well, the world's my oyster. The economy's going to keep growing. You know, all this, that was really what was sort of animating uh, yeah. that, the world at that time. Russia jumped into that post-communism, you know, jumped into sort of liberal democracy, capitalism, um, and, you know, it was heady days. But quickly for many people in Russia and, and in the post-Soviet space, it turned into a nightmare. Mm. The 90s are remembered as a really chaotic time. And they, you know, didn't have the institutions. Um, uh, there was so much, you know, under existing underneath the surface of communism. There was there was mafia and organized crime and corruption. And so Russia, you know, begins as, a, as an oligarchy, you know, this sort of like yes. state of combination of people from the former security services and, and oligarchs and corrupt, you know, mafia and so on and this sort of, you know, former Soviet bureaucracy. So they get rid of communism, but then also, so they've become disillusioned with communism, but then what a lot of people in the West don't realise, they also, many people, uh, particularly at the top, mm. became disillusioned with liberalism and Western liberalism. Mm, okay. um, and so, you know, I think that's a really important thing to, to remember. So a lot of what we're seeing here is then this ideological change that is completely contrary to what we've believed. Uh, so in a sense, you know, there's been an argument that some have said is that in a sense, they could be ahead of us in a way, in the sense that we're only becoming sort of many people are becoming disillusioned with liberalism in the West now. Yes. Where Russia sort of got there very quickly. Um, so I think that's what I became really interested in. What if actually uh, what Russia went through at a quickest space? I'm not going to say we go through exactly the same, but what if we were actually weren't heading towards this liberal triumphant moment, this post Christian moment? What if actually we were heading to somewhere else? Uh, so yeah, that's what I sort of 
I guess that's the big picture reason of why I began to take notice of what was happening in Russia. Yeah, great. Um, and interestingly, we've been, we've been talking about that, um, mm. you know, the West moving towards this uh, beautiful utopic future and mm. realising the emptiness of that yes. um, imagined promise and the illusion that it is. Uh, okay, well, let's let, looking back at Russia, um, what has changed? What yeah. what is this um, plot twist that's yeah. that's occurred that has led us to where we where we are now and, and looking at our new screens and mm. yeah. Well, sometimes there's two plot twists. I think the first plot twist I was watching is the emergence of Russia and China as real competitors to this vision of liberalism in the West. Mm-hmm. The second plot twist is we're going to go back to Rebuilders last. We had a break last week and yeah. um, the week before, you know, we started mentioning Russia and mm. uh, I made a prediction um, that Putin was not going to attack. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wasn't alone in that and um, really that was just me reading a lot of the Russia experts I follow, mm. um, military experts, politicians and everyone bar a few military sort of strategist guys who were looking at build-ups of insane amounts of tanks on the Ukrainian mm, and yeah. Belarusian borders. Uh, they were like, no, this is this is more than just a sort of, you know, psyop um, from, from Putin. Um, and I was com- profoundly shocked. Um, at first I thought maybe he's just going to go into the east of the country, secure, you know, the parts of the country that he sort of already destabilised in 2014, these so-called independent um, um, republics. But, you know, when started to see bombing in, in Kiev and Lviv and these places. It was just absolutely shocking mm. and very quickly realised that we were at, you know, war again. And I think a, a, a very um, pertinent question that a lot of people have asked is, you know, why has this grabbed us? Um, we had a terrible war in Syria and mm. Iraq, yeah. uh, which the West, um, you know, could be blamed for starting, at least in, in Iraq and um, and then some of, you know, so in Libya and and Yemen, um, you know, why is the world, you know, and getting, you know, I follow lots of different global voices on Twitter and places and, you know, there's genuine hurt and anger in particularly the Middle East as to why yeah. we've ignored this. Uh, we also have a terrible war in Ethiopia at the moment. It's a civil war um, that is largely ignored. I think what's different though, uh, so yeah, there is part of that. It's, it's that Western bias, you know, and, uh, you know, there very well is some really interesting questions around race and so on with that. Mm. We also had a, a, a very serious war um, uh, in 2020 um, uh, with uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really on the, on the doorstep of Europe, um, you know, which didn't get the um, media coverage. But I think what's different about this war is, and we'll talk about some of the factors, but I think the big thing is this is a very 1914, 1939 type war. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Ethiopia has the potential to spill over into countries like Eritrea and so on. Uh, and you know, There's already elements of that in the Horn of Africa. But this is a war amongst very powerful countries with very powerful militaries um, in Europe. And the last two times we had a spillover from a war like this in 1914, 1939, we had a world war. Mm. And um, you, know, you are then also talking about the difference between you know, the war in Armenia and Azerbaijan or what's happening in Ethiopia with Tigray uh, is that there are nuclear weapons involved. <laughs> this is an existential crisis for the world. Um, you know, once them and nuclear weapons start going, um, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it. Mm. Uh, probably the death of most people in the world. Uh, so, you know, we're at the unthinkable moment. And I think, you know, my question um, before we sort of jump into what this ha- has meant has been, how did Putin, who many people characterized as, yes, he pushes the envelope but doesn't take risks, how did we get to this point where he's just like thrown it all in with a massive land war in the midst of Europe? Um, you know, when he did the incursion into Georgia uh, in 2008, it was very quick, lasted two weeks, um, when uh, well, technically he was prime minister at that time to Medved, the, pre- the president, but really Putin was in control. 2014, incursion into Crimea, you know, there's the sort of was like just turned up, uh, little green men, all this sort of stuff. So very quickly, you know, I went back and listened to a podcast that I'd listened to in 2020, uh, just after coronavirus started. Um, uh, there's a Russia watching podcast called In Moscow Shadows by the British Russia watcher Mark Galliotti and he talked about these reports that were coming out from Russia that a couple of people were saying that Putin 
um, had come under the influence of a particular faction within the Russian leadership. And this faction was around the Security Council and particularly the leader of the Security Council, um, Nikolai Patrushev. Patrushev, really interesting guy in the sense that he's even more ideological than Putin. Mm. Former KGB guy um, and basically believes that the West is out to utterly destroy uh, Russia. And uh, he, with some others, the rumours are that uh, they believe that um, one of the generals uh, in this sort of their group of what they call the strongman or the Siloviki actually has psychic ability to read other people's dreams and read the dreams of the then US Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, and saw in her dreams that the West, America and Britain, wanted to utterly wipe Russia off the face of the world and that the West was evil. And so what's interesting is what Mark Elliott outlined, and even as he was outlining this, he's saying like, I don't, think, I don't know if this is a bit over the top, but he um, speculated that um, basically what they're saying is Patrushev was also in charge of Russia's pandemic responses, that if a pandemic ever came along, um, uh, Patrushev was in, in charge of this and the Security Council was in charge of response to pandemics. So the pandemic happens and, and all the rumours are that Putin becomes very isolated. Putin is afraid of getting coronavirus and is like sealed off almost. So no longer is he moving around the elites like he, he would have once. He's sealed off with this very small group of voices of this what's called the mobilization faction. They're sort of calling them. And these are the, the, the sort of true believers, the ideologues who both believe in Russian nationalism, that Russia has been totally undermined by the West and that they're sort of completely... Uh, terrible concepts of the West. Almost the fear is that movie Her, like we're saying, yeah, yeah. that the West would come and it would just rob Russia of everything that it loves and that actually that's what the West is doing, that it's movies, it's NGOs, it's, it's internet influence. All of this is, is, is destined to destroy Russia. You know, it's a very conspiracy theorist uh, worldview, but also in some sense, understandable, in fact, of globalization, which yeah. we saw as positive, but saw as their own culture sort of being wiped out. And so this sort of almost mystical mashup of beliefs, some of it is this group come from the intelligence services, they're former Soviet officials, but they don't believe in communism anymore, but they believe in that sort of unity of the people that a communist system and, and structure can create, particularly amongst the leadership. They are partially influenced by the Russian Orthodox Church, which has become more and more nationalistic and cut off. Um, and, and then there's weird mysticism. I mentioned the psychic, but it's interesting that in the um, final days of the Soviet Union, psychics were on TV as people tried to find a sense of meaning forward. Mm. So there's sort of this mystical beliefs, but then this real sense of nationalism, but it's more than just Russian nationalism is this sense that there is a Russian people and this sort of Rus, this, this great connection of these people in places like Ukraine and, and 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 you know parts of Moldova and and um, Georgia and Belarus that actually they need to be reunited and what's keeping them apart is actually um, you know the West. So on that podcast, twenty twenty, um, uh, Galliotti sort of tells this story and they said, look, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's over the top. But you know the one worrying thing is that Patrushev could want war. Now, if you think about it. Um, We've seen at church and everyone who's listening at church is people who you didn't see for two years and who completely changed during coronavirus. Totally. We've talked about people who deconstructed their faith or became went down rabbit holes and, you know, became QAnon followers. And in some sense, I wonder if that's what's happened to, to Putin. Not that he was, this is a new thing to him, but the intensification of being with a group, being cut off from the world sort of with coronavirus, there's something changed. Interesting, some comments that British ambassador to uh, Russia said, you know, seeing Putin, he's, this is the former British ambassador, said he seems different. The French diplomats who met Putin to negotiate against the war just before the conflict began said he seemed a different person in 2019. Marco Rubio, the US politician who's the, um, uh, I think he's sort of the liaison house chair of whatever the Senate committee or whatever. Basically, the intelligence services report to him as a politician. He's been tweeting intel and <laughs> tweeting mysterious things like, I, I wish I could tell you more, but something's different with Putin. Um, so something's changed. But I think what this says to us is everyone was looking at this and going, it's not going to happen because we're looking at this like rational, liberal, democratic Westerners. Yes. You know, why would someone throw it all away in, in a danger of a, a nuclear escalatory war that becomes a world war because it's not in his interest to do that because he's just a practical, pragmatic person like us. Mm -hmm. But I think this has shown he's a true believer. 
and the people around him at True Believers and a small group um, of of leaders has has you know is influencing him. There's some people said he made this decision by himself. But what this says is the world that we thought where everyone's just going to like be won over to the beautiful apocalypse, her version of the world mm. is not happening. And so, you know, we now are facing a group who are willing to level cities and use yeah. at this point, you know, it looked like they've used a thermobaric weapon, um, a vacuum bomb and a shelling cities. And, you know, so this is, this is shocking for the West. Yes. But also reveals what was always there. I think this was always in, you know, Russian elites and and in other parts of the world. People think very differently. And the West or the developed world, whatever you want to call it, the liberal democratic bloc is now facing that and the world has changed. Two things just finally oh, shut up for a second. <laughs> this this is a second acceleration. We we've got the pandemic, mm. massive accelerator of, of of change. And it ended and you know, I think it was um of oh, uh, temporaries, um, Nicholas Christakis, um, the psychologist, um, I think he may be at Yale, you know, wrote a book about how, you know, after the great, after the, after the 1918, 1919 flu pandemic, uh, you had the roaring 20s and it was this sort of big party. Yes. And he wrote a book about a year ago, like when the pandemic ends, we're going to have another roaring 20s, big party. What's happening is, um, you know, I think Andy Crouch said this, on Twitter early on is, you know, we're actually going in reverse. We're going from like, we had the 1918 flu. Now we're in 1914, yes. you know, we're going yeah, backwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the speed of change that's happening in the world is just absolutely phenomenal. We'll talk more about that a bit, but two accelerations in two years that have honestly brought 50 years of change. It's, it's quite phenomenal. So with, if we take a step back from the details of what's, What's happening in Russia, um, Putin's history, and we look at this situation, what is this telling us culturally about this moment? Yeah. Well, one of the ways we help people understand this world is mm. through giving language, and this, this is what my new book's about. We've entered a new phase. It's a grey zone. Yeah. You know, an era has ended or ending and a new era is beginning, but there's an in-between space between the two where they overlap. And I think like we've been talking about how we're entering into a grey zone. Mm. COVID, you know, like accelerated that. But yeah. I feel like this war has like, again, we're on that fast moving travelator at high speed now. We're not just entering grey zone. We're now well and truly in it. And and the things that are typical of a grey zone, uh, it's disorienting. Yes. Um, it doesn't operate by the rules that we uh, know and trust. So yes. there is this sense that everything is is falling apart and you don't really know where you should be putting your feet. Yes, yes. The world you once knew is no longer recognisable, but yeah. you're living in a world that's also unrecognisable. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and you think about the unthinkable is now increasingly thinkable. Mm. Um, I go, you know, I've talked about on here before, you know, when I was saying to people, people were asking me when the pandemic hit in 2020, you know, March, like how long will this last for? And you know, six weeks, and I'm like, no, 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 like you're not going to be you know, <laughs> this. This a pandemic, you know, the Spanish flu lasted two years, and I yeah. said, this is not an event; it's a process. Mm. And um, that was unthinkable. It was unthinkable to see those images. We're used to them now, but you have, you know, New York City, London, Buenos Aires, you know, Rio, you know, Cape Town, you know, these cities shut down across the world. Mm. And, you know, that China would be sort of shut off from the world. It was just unthinkable. Um, the millions would die, you know. Like I think the US is at 950,000 dead of COVID. People are still dying of COVID. Like there's people saying COVID's over. You know, like there's still huge impact having COVID yeah, in the world. Huge. I know there's some highly vaccinated countries like ours which have sort of decided to live with it and move on. But a lot of the world still massive impact. Um, and I think, you know, You'd think you'd learned that the thinking the unthinkable was not thinkable. And I think like when I saw Putin on the edge with all the troops, the most logical explanation was that he was going to attack. <laughs> and yeah. but I couldn't think of that. I couldn't think that after a pandemic, the unthinkable of a potential massive conflict in you in Ukraine and a potential world war is unthinkable. But now you're thinking the unthinkable, you know. I mean, people are talking about nuclear escalatory rhetoric and you have to now think that 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 is a possibility i saw someone mm. say you know um 
we now have to actually start to say that perhaps nuclear war is a more immediate threat than climate change. That's not to downplay climate change, yeah. but the, the odds that we could get taken out by nuclear war before we get taken out by uh, you know, climate change are now very real. Um, this is stuff we were not thinking literally 10 days ago. Mm. And um, so I think you know part of it is that the unthinkable is, is unthinkable. And what this is doing is it's changing the structure and the power arrangements of the world. The shift, you know, shift in power is swirling in the world, and you know, two two major ways I think that's happening is, um, you know, we talked about new blocks in the world. This is fast sped that. So we talked about yeah, like okay. I think we talked about in the podcast. You know, you could have a future where there's. It may. I've been on lots of podcasts. I forget what yeah, I'm saying. I'll say, right. on, say on which ones. But, you know, like the future could be not this one world of globalization. It could mm. be the China world, the the EU world, the America Pacific world. Um, that is that's in play now, but in a radical way that we didn't think. Mm. So you've got China, which did do a security sort of alliance with with uh, uh, Russia just before this. The yeah. Pakistan Prime Minister, the former dashing cricketer Imran Khan, flew in as the invasion was happening and said, "Wow, what what an exciting place to be." Um, Jair Bolsonaro, the the president of Brazil, flew into Moscow a few days before. You know, now has come out condemning, but you know, like which way does he go? Um, you know, Obrador, the, the, the president of Mexico is sort of not making calls. There's a lot of, if, if you're watching this and going, the whole world is united against this, when you start to look at a lot of news sources, it's, it's not so. There's a heck of mm. a lot of countries, uh, you look at what's happening in Southeast Asia, are going, which way is this going to fall? Who's the new leaders in the world? What's going to happen here? Yeah. Um, you know, everyone is looking at the Taiwan Strait now. Of you know, What lessons does China take from this, for, from Taiwan? Mm. So the 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 world is shifting. And another thing we've said here, which I think is even more relevant now, is, you know, culture lies downstream from geopolitics. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you talk of, um, you know, Russia shut its airspace. Sorry, so many people shut their airspace to Russia. Russia's retaliating. You know, there's talk of even flights around the world could be really difficult to get to because you can't fly over certain, Russians can't fly over certain places. Yes, and, you yes, know, yes, yes. People go over other certain places. So currently we're in a, a gray zone which is being accelerated, not just by the pandemic, but now cyber war, economic, we're in a full economic war, maybe we can talk about in a second, mm. information war. We now have bombs and bullets of a kinetic war and now there's a moral war as well. Yes. You know, so there's people saying, you know, like we have to do something about this and people saying, well, what did you do about Iraq or Syria? Um, or we need to do something about this. And, and we're seeing images of, you know, African foreign students who are then being turned back from trains on the Polish border and people saying, oh, you know, going to Poland and people saying, well, what are you saying about that? We're in full-blown contested space. <laughs> We've been yeah, trying to argue yeah. that massively in, in grey zone. Okay, so there's also a bit of a, a disruption or a, a revealing, I suppose, yes. of the the idols in the illusions, and I think I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but we've had the wool over our eyes for a really yeah. long time as the West. Yes. Yes. Well... <laughs> It's, it's one of the most fascinating repeated statements you heard on day one and day two of this was from politicians, from commentators, from Russia analysis to even people, you know, who lived in, in Kiev. I can't believe this is happening in 2022. Mm. Such a fascinating revealing statement. And it reveals a belief that we'd move past this. Yeah. Or we'd move past this for parts of the world. You did see, you know, other people saying, you know, uh, you know, I can't believe this is happening in a modern civilized city, you know, in the West. And a lot of people I think have rightly pushed out that that has this very, you know, <laughs> there's racial elements to that. There is cultural elements of superiority to that where, mm. or, you know, we accept that it's going to happen in Syria because they're different to us um, or in Eastern Europe. Like, And it's not just race. It's also a class thing. Like we didn't hear those statements when there was conflict in Eastern Ukraine, but now it's people yeah. in Kiev who are more middle class or upper class or cooler or look more like us or whatever. But I think what this this you know it's just two quotes I wrote down from the paper oh sorry the the paper the paper so Australian yeah I got the paper this morning two two articles um, uh, in Time magazine Bruno Massais often quoted on this podcast uh, said uh, today reflecting on how Europe saw the world that mm. the wool was then as you said pulled over the eyes that he says nothing worked everything turned out to be a failure or an illusion and now we must watch the old world go up in flames. 
Uh, Raphael Beer in The Guardian said, the past has invaded the present. The age of levity is over. And I think what's happened is this sort of mythical view of the world, the her view of the world, which did continue that. Yes. I think the her world of the world went from, oh, the whole world's going to become like this to maybe the blocks of the developed world will stay like this, you know, because mm. not just the West. I mean, you look, you know, what's interesting in this block to South Korea, Japan, Singapore have all done sanctions. It's this sort of developed, you know, for want of a better term, the first world um, now all of a sudden sees that it has to look at the world differently, that a more realistic view of the world. One fascinating sort of reset moment I saw happening at hyperspeed was if you think about a lot of the language you know, around self-care that's come in the culture yeah, yeah. of, you know, well, you need to look after yourself. It's been exhausting and, you know, watch your mental health and so on. And NPR on Twitter put up a tweet saying, you know, look, you need to practice self, I'm quoting, I'm sorry, paraphrasing, mm. you know, you need to protect yourself during this time and practice self-care. And if you're looking at too many images of the um, war in Ukraine, you need to step away and, you know, prioritize your health or something like that. And, you know, that was very normal. That was a growing thing. You know, yes. if you think about the social contract, of the West, it sort of went from social contract theory is you give up some freedom to the government in order to protect you. That has changed as the West has developed. Mm. It then became like, well, you sort of give up some freedom, but we're going to maximize your individual freedom. Yes. You know, you have yes, a passport yes, yes. and got across a barrier, but, you know, go and explore the world, you know, live your best life, self-create. That then has changed even into more now, well, we'll protect your feelings, you know, we'll create safe spaces and watch mm. the language and police things and stuff like that. Um, NPR puts that tweet up, which is very much in that sort of last space around, you know, protecting your mental health and what comes in and just got destroyed. You know, there's literally people telling me, I'm in Kiev and, you know, there's people sheltering in a shelter in below, you know, like there's kids being mm. killed and you're mm. literally telling, you know, rich, privileged people in the West to protect their mental health. And you just saw it in a second go. Yes. I mean, again, I mean the thing I've been fascinated is seeing sort of, you know, warm, cuddly, for want of a better term, I don't mean to be disparaging, but sort of, you know, woke-y, again, for want of a better term, not being disparaging, <laughs> more left-leaning, you know, always pushing to compassion people on Twitter and social media, literally like cheering on burnt Russian tanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, take that, you know, F Fs, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, just, yeah, yeah. How did this happen in five days? And, oh, just, yeah. Yeah, just on that, like the our last episode, we talked about that concept of a floating signifier and how... Yes. Um, you know, uh, pastors in churches have become this floating signifier that other people put these identities onto. I want you to be this person for me. I want you to be this kind of person for me. But I wonder in this setting whether people have adopted their own floating signifiers, as yes. in I'm going to say the right words and I'm going to say the right things, but it's actually got no basis. It's not. It's mm. not hanging on anything meaningful or deep in terms of morality or theology mm. and so when something happens like ukraine being invaded suddenly those those signifiers that meant i'm doing the right thing i'm saying the right thing are suddenly without any yes. substance and yes. you pivot and you start speaking completely differently yes. because there's not a, a real true moral basis for those yes. those yeah. ideas and it happens so quickly like yes. In an internet space. Um, it's, I mean, it's interesting too because, you know, we've talked about on here as well, like this growing dissatisfaction in the public as the, as the world sees injustices mm. and that becomes clearer because of social media, iPhones. Um, the, the, you know, Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public, is a great capture of this dynamic. The public wants more. You know, mm. and the George Floyd video um, captured that. You know, here's this horrible injustice. Um, more should be done. The governments and, and systems and structures and public need to address this. So let's have this sort of community-wide thing to do that. You know, and you see movements begin and, you know, there's a bunch of stories and, you know, in Australia, like something like Brittany Higgins, um, the parliamentary staffer mm. um, in parliament, you know, so there's this sense of, okay, let's, these stories are uncovered, let's do something about them. We can see them now. And on social media, that sort of moves virally. But what's interesting with this is those sort of rights that you're demanding now that's happening in a country where in order to then go and exercise those rights, you would have to also 
take control of land to exercise those rights, if that makes sense. So you can see this public sense of outrage, rightly moral outrage at what's happening. You know, you're seeing just night after night, just sort of emblematic I- images. Like the Vietnam War, there was the famous image of the young mm. naked child who was running with napalm yeah. burnt. And, you know, that was like one of these turning moments where it captured the moral indignation. And in a sense, mm. Vietnam had less of an, you know, less of the finances of the United States, but it began to win the moral war in the eyes of, of people's, um, the sort of television public. But we're getting them day after day after day. And, you know, what I, I think is interesting is this hunger for people to, to change and not let this happen. But for us to do that, we're going to have to use military power. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if we're going to go and then say, well, we've got to protect the people of Ukraine, we, we've pushed the, and we'll get into sanctions and stuff in a second. We've pushed the sanctions, like on day one, it's like these sanctions are weak. I mean, it is it is next level, um, some of the sanctions. Um, so we're pushing economic war to the absolute, you know, red line where almost we're going to get to the point where you can't do any more. Yeah. So therefore to want rights for those people in that country, and I'm not advocating war or anything here. I'm just saying this creates a conundrum for- yes that desire in the world that's been growing of justice, mm. but people are going to be absolutely unable to do that. It's going to be constantly on the doorstep of Europe <laughs> mm. um, with seeing this all the time and there's nothing we can do because those rights are being you know, in a place which has now been taken over yes. and rights sort of end at your border or end where those international agreements of those rights are maintained. Yeah. Whew. Okay, well, you've mentioned sanctions there. Mm. Let's let's look at that um, in a little bit more detail. So mm. uh, we did a series back in 2020 where we talked about the networked world mm. and this is really these sanctions are being um, played out in this yeah. networked yeah. Um, context. Mm. I mean, <laughs> so traditionally sanctions, a government will say we're not going to trade with that country because yeah. of this, because of human rights abuses or whatever. What's fascinating, because we're now in a networked world, we're now in a socially mediated world, mm-hmm. is some of those sort of network dynamics are now playing out in that. So you've got the government sanctions, but then you've sort of got, almost in the, in the pandemic as well, you saw this like power being used locally as well. So for example, like I think it was Ottawa, the province in Canada, like did their own sort of like, we're not going to buy anything from Russia sanction, you know, which normally you wouldn't have provinces doing stuff like that. Yeah. Companies. Um, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, apparently Aldi here, you know, in Australia is like throwing out Russian vodka. You've got like Boeing um, who have said, we're not going to provide parts and services for the Russians' internal uh, domestic air fleet. Yeah, right. Apple, um, you know, sort of stopping, you know, like Apple, like BMW, like, you know, uh, Exxon, Exxon Oil, BP. Yeah. Like, you know, and there's a picture I saw of um, the Moscow underground of just this huge – uh, sort of a traffic jam of, of commuters mm. who could not get through the turnstiles because their Apple Pay and their credit cards have all stopped working. Right. Netflix, you know, they can't get Netflix, they can't get Spotify, internet's down. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because almost what it is is, again, if you think about the world's move from centralised authorities yep. to a networked reality. Mm-hmm. And in network reality, Movements don't just come from down, they also come from up. Yes. So what you're seeing is like, you know, like I think it was first Schalke FC, the the German football team, you know, who was sponsored by Gazprom. They're like, we're not going to wear in our shirts. Now they've got rid of it. Manchester United, like, you know, got rid of um, its sponsorship with Aeroflot. There was the Canadian Hockey League was saying, we're not going to draft players from Russia and Belarus. The badminton, the international (laughs) badminton. I love badminton. It is fun. Badminton associations like banned Russia. I mean, so it's almost this networked thing that's moving now to completely disengage Russia from the network. And a parallel, it's fascinating the parallel. If everyone who's in here thinking cancel culture is just a dynamic of progressives doing to conservatives because they don't like them, no. It's actually a form of network disconnection and we're seeing them now Mm, with Russia. mm. And so there's there's a point here. So like, interestingly, uh, this morning as of recording, there was a video where Boris Johnson went to Poland, mm-hmm. a Ukrainian journalist in the audience asked him a question and gave a very impassioned, uh, you know, I don't know if it was a plea, it was, it was a sort of dressing down at the end, it was a plea to establish a no-fly zone. Now, a no-fly zone is where, like what happened over Iraqi Kurdistan during the Gulf War, where if any sort of, because they wanted Kurdistan to survive, which was a sort of autonomous zone of, of Iraq, 
that the British or American Air Force would shoot down Iraqi jets. Now, that's what they want for Ukraine. Now, the difference is there's a big difference between the Iraqi Air Force and yeah. a Russian Air Force. Well, that, if that was to happen, that would, that would mean there is an air war between Russia and NATO. An air war between Russia and NATO will fully turn into a, a, a real war very quickly. Interestingly, because of the power of these videos, mm. then you see not long after that, UK Labor, again, this is the left-wing party, you know, which you know traditionally has been the ones often against war and so on, was saying, well, we're now going to talk to the government about a no-fly zone. So what you could see happening is often countries have gone into war and wars escalated because governments are pushing it because of this emotive, immersive reality. You can see this network effect where because we're seeing these images, we're like, we need to do something now where governments are being forced to do more and you get this escalatory crisis where the war spills over. So this is an un- before seen reality where this mm. war is different. And again, to 100% agree, we, we shouldn't have a moral differentiation between what's happening in Ethiopia and what's happening in, in Ukraine. But I think the difference with this war as well is that the ability for it to spill over, not just because they could go into Moldova and take part of Transnistria, yeah, yeah, yeah. but because of what the dynamics is. This is now a fully global networked world. I mean, one example, um, India is sort of stayed on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Indian student was killed today, and then there's pressure. Well, what you know, what's India's response to this? Because we're so connected socially, economically, technologically, the potential of this for disruption is going to go on. Uh, you know, sort of this. It's this is again to use a phrase we've talked about. This is not a complicated war. This is now an utterly complex war. Yes, yes. And so the second order effects are incredible. I mean, I just read this morning. Um, that I think all the senators in the US Capitol were given a briefing and the estimates from the US military is this will be a 10 to 20 year war. <sighs> and uh, you've got foreign fighters coming in from all over in, in Europe on, on the borders of, of NATO and EU. So, you know, th- this, is, this is an incredibly different scenario that we're currently facing mm-hmm. um, in the world and, and a huge agent of change. This, is, this will create a different world. I'm just going to take that one in for a moment. Um, I wonder if we if we end on this point, Mark. We talked about the pandemic as a return to nature, mm. but something that you've just um, or a few of the things that you've just touched on tells us that this war is a is the return to human nature. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think we 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 spoke about that with. Um, the Black Lives Matter protests mm. in the US where, you know, the pandemic was the return of nature. Humans, modernity is based on the idea that we've conquered nature. Yes. And we've created this environment buffered by technology and science where we can be protected from nature killing us at a very mm. early age. Mm. Pandemic pushed back on that. Where all of a sudden people in, in a London are going the underground and thinking, you know, I could die, you know, early on in the pandemic through yeah, catching yeah. something. So that was nature pushing into the artificial environment that we've created. You know, I, I said that. What, what the George Floyd video and, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement did was then reveal that human nature has not changed, that racism and, and prejudice is still existent, even with all the education and all of this stuff that, yes. that we've put in place to have this liberal democratic world, there are still injustices underneath the surface. I think this is even an intensification of that. Mm. I think that um, uh, there was, I was thinking about this, that I, I saw someone on um, Twitter quote, the famous Yeats poem, The Second Coming. Yep. Um, I did have it here. And um, I was thinking particularly of um, uh, in 1969, 1968, uh, the BBC wanted to do tele- television. Colour television had come in. Yep. And uh, – David Attenborough, I think, was actually controlling some of the content. Hmm. And they wanted to do something where let's do something different. You know, we're meant to elevate the public. So let's actually do almost high art as TV. Hmm. So they they commissioned someone, Kenneth Clark, who was sort of an intellectual um, uh, sort of, uh, I think he was at Oxford or Cambridge. And he, I think he was also a trustee of the British Museum to give this, you know, big arc of what what is the great questions humanity has has wrestled with and you know it's this big thing and it was hugely influential it's been sort of taken apart now as people see you know there's sort of like 
obviously sort of flaws he made in sort of his read of civilization and so on. But interestingly, at the end, Kenneth Clark sort of ends and he sort of says, where are we now? And he's really asked the question, where is Western society? Mm. And he sort of makes these statements. He says at the very end, and again, there's millions of people. I think it was like 2.5 million watched it in the UK and 5 million watched it in the US. It's yeah. extraordinary for this massive high art sort of exploration of, you know, of, of civilization, which by that he really means Western civilization. Mm. And at the end he says, you know, I'm, I'm a stick in the mud. I prefer – he saw some of the cultural – what he felt was the cultural unraveling that was happening. 1968 was a pivotal year in, in, in you know, the 20th century. So the West seemed to be unraveling at that time. And he said, you know, I'm a stick in the mud because at the end of the day I prefer – um, I think it's like order to chaos, yes. you know, gentleness to, to hatred and, yep. you know, forgiveness to vindica- vindictiveness. And he quoted Yeats and he quoted the famous Yeats post, The Second Coming, you know, and this was – it's been put up. I've seen multiple people putting it up on uh, Twitter uh, as this war's begun and it's often invoked at moments when people are sort of um, worrying that the West will fall. Mm. And the first, I'll read the whole thing. The the, the first paragraph is this, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, whilst the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeats was a member of what's called the Protestant Ascendancy, the Protestant minority Church of Ireland in, in Ireland. He, he was, became a sort of politician. But he wrote that poem at the end of World War I. Mm. The world seemingly had fallen apart. He also wrote it as I think both him and his wife, I think his wife was actually quite sick with the Spanish flu. Okay. This is a poem written at the end of a world war, Spanish flu, but also it was written in a time of Irish nationalism where, uh, you know, Ireland was beginning the process of sort of fighting for its independence, of which mm. it was at the centre of. So often it's sort of like, um, uh, you know, given as this sense of here's this thing, you know, to hold on to the centre of Western culture and a sort of a warning of, of those moments of, of high drama. The second... Um, uh, uh, paragraph goes on like this. Second paragraph is often not read, but it goes on like this. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming, hardly those words out when a vast image of spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world. Now it's interesting, he's using the language of the second coming, which we, we you know, associate with Christ. Yes. So what is this vast image? Troubles my sight somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep are vexed, were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. This image of a creature somewhere in the desert being roused, of coming back to life. It's a second coming, but it's not what we think of the second coming. It's a sort of antichrist monster mm. that he feels has almost been unleashed in the midst of, of Europe. And all of the things that he was seeing in the world of the pandemic and the World War and Irish nationalism, the battle in Ireland that is represented as something is, is chaotic. Now, what's interesting is Yeats was also deeply, you know, we, this is considered a modernist poem. Mm. And, you know, we often talk about the sort of liberal democratic West and its modernist values. But Yeats, like so many modernists and so many people we hold up as heralds of the Enlightenment, you know, early on to, you know, more modernist people like Yeats, actually were very pagan. Yeah. Yeats was into spiritualism. Yeats was part of a weird hidden sort of uh, uh, group of occultists mm-hmm. <laughs> that a lot of the aristocracy, aristocracy was in. You know, like someone like Jung, he thought that actually spirits were making him right in automatic ways. That's yeah, right. part of this poem was actually him spiritually connecting to a sort of force mm. that was giving him this insight into the world. And so- 
I think this also reveals, there's an element, yes, the West does feel like it's falling apart, but also what this does, and think about one of the great themes of this podcast is the revealing of idols, mm. <laughs> the revealing of how everything is called to account by the gospel. Uh, New Begins, great concept that, yes, we go into the world to preach the gospel to the world, and the West has done that, but also the gospel must be preached back to the West. Yes. And for me, this concept that actually underneath the West, there is often a, an engagement with with paganism mm. when you scratch the surface. And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing the the layers ripped off, all these illusions that we had. We're seeing the true nature of the world, that it's difficult and filled with sin and brokenness and tribalism, nationalism, racism, you know, <laughs> mysticism. All these things have not gone away. They're still there. They never went away. They were always underneath the surface. We're not as different to the rest of the world as we thought. But the good news is there is a second coming. Mm. That our hope should never be in the West and what it can do and the diplomats. You know, I pray Godspeed to every every diplomat at this time. You know, mm. I pray that Ukraine can miraculously protect itself um, from this Russian incursion. I pray for change of leadership that that Russia gets the leader it deserves for what an incredible, incredible country, mm. uh, culture it is. Um, but the second coming is our hope. Jesus is our hope. We're seeing the world more accurately, and that's hard. But also, it's it's good news. And getting all emotional, aren't we? Mm. I th I think uh, you know we're praying tonight. People are praying across the world. It's Ash Wednesday. I mean, what here in Australia? It's Ash Wednesday. It might not be where when you hear this, but what an Ash Wednesday moment. You know, Ash Wednesday is walking through the passion of the Christ towards the cross and the world walks that way again. Mm. But on the other side, resurrection. Thanks, Mark. I'll see you guys next time.